I'm going to start with the text this morning from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your wealth. We're starting a new sermon series this morning. It's just going to be today and the next Sunday on stewardship. This morning, specifically, we're going to talk about being good stewards of the wealth, of the money, of the financial resources that God has given us. Uh, Many decades ago, there was a commercial flight flying across the United States, and they had to fly through a storm. So if you're afraid of flying or you get a little antsy when you're in the air and you hit some turbulence, you know this feeling. They were going through some pretty bad turbulence, and you could tell that the passengers on the plane were very nervous, almost frantic. And then lightning struck their plane. So you could hear people screeching and screaming, the passengers on the flight, and one guy stood up and he yelled out, somebody do something religious, because when you're in a life-threatening situation... You hope that somebody has some sort of connection with God, and and God can intervene for you. There's an old comedian and actor named Bob Hope, and Bob Hope claims that he was on this flight, and he said that when somebody yelled that out, somebody do something religious, Bob decided that he would step it up and he would do something. So he took off his hat and passed it around, and he took up a collection. He did something (laughs) religious. All churches, nonprofit organizations, missionaries, mission agencies rely on the financial contributions of generous people, usually people of faith. A man named Tom Rayner. Uh, he is a church researcher, a church consultant. Tom Rayner is great. I, I am thankful for Tom Rayner because I have relied on his articles and his research so often. And recently he wrote an article, and the title was, Why the Giving in Your Church is Decreasing. And I want to share a few of those bullet points that he shares in his article because I think it relates to what we're talking about this morning. Uh, he's done a lot of research and here, over spanning over several different churches, here are some pretty good reasons why the giving could be decreasing. One of those, and I don't know if you can see that very well, lower attendance. Churches throughout the United States are struggling with attendance. As attendance goes down, so does contribution. But you look at a church like Pine Tree, and we've been blessed with great attendance. But one of the things that Tom Rainer mentions in this article is frequency of attendance. Because in our culture now, uh, students and even adults, there's all sorts of activities offered on weekends, even on Sundays. So people still attend church and are still members of a church, but the frequency of how often they attend has decreased. And as a result, giving decreases. He said a family who attends three times a month is more likely to give than a family who who attends twice a month. And although most churches have the option to give online, and here's a side note, a little hint for you, if you go to our website at Pine Tree, there's a tab to give online, and it's really easy. So even though there's options like that, or you can work with your bank and they can set it up to where they pay automatically and you don't even have to write the check, even though those options are there, there is a connection between being physically present and contribution. So lower attendance has affected 
a, a decrease in giving in most churches, and so has generational shifts. Um, I'm not going to get into the breakdown of the different birth years and what generation is what, because that's confusing and not everybody agrees on that. But the younger generation, one of the generations that, that I'm in, and I won't say the name of that generation because most people hate that generation, so I'll just tell you, my generation is kind of dropping the ball when it comes to financial contribution. And there's a number of reasons for that. One of those is younger people seem to have a distrust towards where the money's going. Another reason that's on here is that people like to give now to purposes rather than organizations. And so some of the older generations have carried the financial load of keeping that side of the church running. But if I could offer a critique for my own generation, and I think I can say this because I'm a part of the generation, is I know I have a lot of friends, people my age, younger than me, just a little bit older than me, that when they do come to church, they want to connect with God. They want to be a part of something that God is at. They want to have a, a vibrant worship service, a, a great lesson. They want, if they have kids, they want something offered for their kids, and they want it to be good. They want, and our generation seems to want to consume, but not really contribute. So there's something missing there. Uh, there's a generational shift that's affecting giving, contribution. Uh, another reason that Tom Rayner offers for a decrease in giving is little teaching on giving. He said that 20 years ago, preachers preached on giving quite often, and there was a time where people would respond. Preacher would preach on it, giving would increase, but he said that that kind of ran its course, and people got tired of hearing those lessons, so the pendulum swung the other way, and preachers stopped preaching on giving quite as often, to the point where we just don't do it very often, so maybe it's a good thing to preach on why we give every once in a while, and then I put pine tree up here. Tom Rayner does not know our church. He doesn't mention Pine Tree in his article, but I put that up there because uh, we ended last year in a deficit, and we've been in a deficit this year. So our church would fit part of what he's talking about in this article is that giving has decreased. And after talking with uh, our elders, we decided it might be a good time to do a lesson on this not to make you feel guilty or beat you up, but just to remind you of why we give. So I've spent several weeks now studying through the Old and New Testament this idea of giving, specifically giving to a church, why we do it, where the idea comes from. And there's several different angles that I could take. All right, normally I'll take a text. You know, that's kind of the way we're taught to preach and do a, a break it down, an expository type of sermon. But as I've studied this topic, I realized that you really can't just take one text. You kind of have to span over the entire canon of Scripture. So that's what we're going to do this morning. And I'm going to offer you four biblical summaries on giving as we see it throughout the Old and New Testament. And these four little summary statements, these are not, it's not an exhaustive list. You could probably add some if you were up here speaking. Uh, I, you're not, so I, we're going to go with my four biblical summaries. And one of those, and these are going to seem obvious, but one of them is giving has always been a part of God's continuing work throughout Old and New Testament. Financial contribution, contribution of livestock, 
of your crops, whatever it may be. Giving has been a part of how God works. And this is where you can insert that statement. God doesn't need our money. Maybe you've said that before, or you've heard that said before. And that's true. God can work outside of whether or not we give. But God chooses to work through his people and through the generosity of his people. In the Old Testament, we have this word tithing, a word that you're probably familiar with. And if you don't know what tithing is, it's giving a tenth of what you have. So in the Old Testament, we see tithing and we see offering your first fruits, your best, not your leftovers. Uh, Before the law of Moses, uh, we see little glimpses of tithing. Uh, This is like the book of Genesis. Early on, before the Israelites are brought out of slavery and, and God gives Moses the law, we see Abel offering a sacrifice to the Lord. He's offering his first, his best. We see Abraham offers a tithe to Melchizedek on this road in Genesis 14. We see Jacob in Genesis 28 offering a tithe. So it's not a systematic tithe before the law of Moses, but there's glimpses of tithing. And then you get to the law of Moses. And you see, I put some scripture references up there, Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 14. There are commands from God to tithe. So by the time you get to the first century, under the law of Moses, rabbis have discovered that there are three main areas of tithing. The way that they understood the law of Moses, the Torah, three main areas of tithing. One of those is the Levitical tithe. This tithe helps provide for the Levites and the priests to help provide for their livelihood so they can perform the religious duties and make a living off of it. Another tithe are the festival tithe. When Jerusalem becomes the main city, the temple, the one temple for the one God in Jerusalem, uh, the Israelites would make a pilgrimage each year, sometimes multiple times a year, to attend these festivals to be reminded of what God has done for them. So the festival tithe would help provide for the festival. And the third category is the charity tithe. You would tithe and take care of the poor, the fatherless, the widow, those in need. So you add up these three different areas of tithing and the different times of year when you're supposed to tithe, and some scholars would tell you it actually equals out to about 20% of their total worth, not 10%. Now, 10% is the tithe, but total, it would wind up 20%. So maybe it's more than we even realized. And then throughout the Old Testament, you see the prophets calling God's people back to a commitment to tithe. You see it in the book of Nehemiah and Amos, and probably the most famous passage on tithing comes from Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. This is God speaking through the prophet Malachi, and he says... Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may, food, may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. So through the prophet Malachi, God is calling his people and saying, you're robbing me. Well, how are they robbing God? Well, they're not tithing. They're tithes and their offerings. And he's saying, test me on it. Tithe, give me a tenth. Give me your best, not your leftovers. 
and you will receive even more blessings. I had a friend growing up who hated mowing the lawn, but his dad always asked him to do it, so he came up with this theory that if he just did such a terrible job mowing the lawn, his dad would stop asking him. This is not a picture of his work, but it kind of gives you an idea. He would mow and intentionally swerve and not go in even lines and leave patches of grass, hoping that when his dad came home week after week, he would be like, my son is so terrible at mowing the lawn, I just won't ask him to do it anymore. He was a poor steward of what his dad had asked him to do. The Israelites had become poor stewards of what God was requiring of them. They weren't tithing. You read the book of Nehemiah, and you see that Nehemiah, in rebuilding the temple, is calling them, charging them to reprioritize their life and continue to tithe. And Jesus, in the first century, by the time you get to the ministry of Jesus, they're still tithing, but there's a problem with it. Tithing is only mentioned three times in the New Testament, twice in the Gospels. In Matthew 23, 23, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you're hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. What Jesus is calling the religious leaders on about their tithing is, yeah, you're doing a really good job of of tithing, of giving a tenth. You're very meticulous about, about that, but you're neglecting some of the more important matters, love, justice, faithfulness, some of the weightier matters of the law. Luke 11 is very similar. In Luke 11, 42, it says, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and other kinds of garden herbs but you've neglected justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. The way that the religious leaders had approached giving or tithing by the time Jesus rolls around was they had become very legalistic about it. So legalistic about tithing that they missed the heart behind why they're tithing in the first place. They had missed the heart behind the Torah, behind the law. So we see tithing sporadically before the law of Moses. We see tithing as a command directly from the law of Moses and what that had come to during the time of Jesus. But some of you may say, okay, but we're no longer under the law. There's a lot of things, a lot of commands that we read about that we no longer practice from the Old Testament because Jesus fulfilled the law, right? We're under grace now, so we're still supposed to tithe. And many of you still practice the discipline of tithing. Okay, there's statistics that show that people who tithe wind up a lot more generous with their money because they're not so attached to it. It may stretch them at first, but tithing promotes generosity just in general. And statistics show that people who do not tithe wind up giving a lot less than a tenth. So tithing actually becomes a great discipline. Did Jesus come to raise the bar or to lower the bar? As you study the life and teachings of Jesus, he seems to raise the bar on how we live. We pass this collection plate around every Sunday morning. And probably, parents, if you have little kids, you might do what we've done occasionally. And if you have some extra cash, you give it to your kid or maybe you give it to your grandkid. And what do you expect them to do with it? Put it in the collection plate. My mom used to always do that with us. We would, if we got money for Christmas or a birthday... She wanted to uh, to establish in us the practice of tithing. 
So she would make us tithe our Christmas money and our birthday money and put it in the collection plate. So when my daughter, who's now five, when she was about two, uh, we decided this would probably be a good practice for her. So we'd hand her a couple of dollars and ask her to put it in the collection plate as it passed by. Does anybody else do this? Are we the only ones? That, okay, some of you. The very first time we asked our daughter to do this, we handed her the money, the collection plate came by, and we said, okay, Addie, put it in there. And she looked at the plate, she looked at us, and just shook her head no. <laughs> we basically had to take her hand and force the money in there, and it was kind of embarrassing for the people that were around us. Now, that was several years ago. She has a very giving spirit, so don't judge her on that. But it took a few weeks to get her used to the practice of doing so, but I thought, you know, as kids, especially my son, who's two now, and, and the word that he says over and over is mine. You know, we want to keep things to ourselves, and especially when it comes to money. Sometimes we have an attitude of, I don't, I don't want to give this because this is mine. What if I don't come across any more of it? And we try to train our children to be generous, to not to be attached to money, but as adults sometimes uh, we still have those feelings of this is mine. In the ministry of Jesus, he says you can't serve two masters. Who are the two masters? You can't serve both God and money. And one of the ways that we show that we're not mastered by money is a willingness to give. So we see that one of those major biblical summaries is that giving has always been a part of God's continuing work. And a second little highlight there is that Jesus assumes followers... Disciples of Jesus will give. If you study the Sermon on the Mount, for example, in Matthew chapter 6, the first part of Matthew 6, Jesus talks about three areas, giving, fasting, and praying. And the reason that Jesus is preaching on those three areas is he's saying, you don't do this to be seen by other people so that you receive praise from human beings, but do it in secret Right? Practice this discipline in secret, but the three things that Jesus says is when you pray, when you fast, when you give. Jesus assumes that to be faithful people, we will do these things. We will give. We will fast. We will pray. So Jesus assumes that we will give. There's an example in Matthew 17 of Jesus paying the temple tax. Uh, he is God in the flesh, so if anybody could get away with not paying the temple tax, it probably would have been Jesus, but he still pays the temple tax. Now, he does tell Peter to go fishing, catch the fish, pull the coin out of the fish's mouth, then pay the temple tax, but regardless of how he does it, he pays the temple tax. But probably the most well-known passage on giving, now Jesus talks a lot about money, and like I've already mentioned, not letting money become an idol or a god, but the most famous passage on giving comes from Luke 21. I want to read, that was our scripture reading this morning, but I want to read it again, Luke 21, verses 1 through 4. Probably known as the widow's might. Just lost my spot, so give me a second. Luke 21, verse 1 through 4. He looked up and he saw rich people putting their gifts into the treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. He said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put all she had to live on. These short four verses, this example of giving, 
is a pretty strong testimony. The two small copper coins this woman puts in the temple treasury is not going to make a difference. But the point that Jesus is making is he mentions rich people. He says these rich people are coming by and they're contributing, and it may be a lot compared to what this woman puts in, but it means nothing to them. They're giving out of their abundance, but she is giving with all she has. That's more than a tithe, that's more than a tenth, and I think what Jesus is pointing out is her heart, her attitude, her motive behind what she's giving. I get a chance to speak to several different places, uh, organizations, groups, whatever it may be. When people find out you're a preacher, they'll ask you to come speak at something. So one day, I was speaking to a group of people who had struggled throughout life with mental health issues. And they introduced me as the preacher of the Pine Tree Church of Christ. I did my talk. After it was over, I was interacting with different people. And one guy who had a pretty severe case came up to me. It was hard to make out what he was saying, but what he was trying to communicate to me was that he has a Church of Christ background. So he was really excited when he found out I was from the Pine Tree Church of Christ. And he said he wanted to offer something for contribution. And he pulled this out of his pocket. It's a phone, like a little Go phone, and a cell phone charger, and it's banged up. You can't even plug it in the wall anymore. He handed this to me, and he said, please give this to the church. And I said, man, I appreciate your heart. I see where you're coming from with this, but there's nothing we can do with this. I said, why don't you keep it, because you might need it. And I looked in his eyes, and he wasn't taking it back, and he said, no, keep it. Please give it. And I thought about that guy. There's nothing we can do with this. This is not going to help solve our deficit problem with our budget. But I put it in the sack, and I look at it occasionally, and I read this story from Luke 21, and I think it's the heart behind the giving. That's what Jesus commends for that widow, and it's the same thing with this guy. He gave out of what he had. He gave from his heart, and he gave joyfully. And Jesus says, when you give, Jesus assumes that people who follow him will be generous, will be willing to, to give, to not be attached to money. And that's a difficult conversation to have. Another biblical highlight, you know, after the life and teachings of Jesus, you get the early church, and we see that giving was a foundational characteristic of the early church. If you've ever studied the book of Acts, you can look at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. In Acts 2, thousands of people are baptized into Christ. It's this great moment in church history of repentance And then immediately, when all these new Christians, a church is formed. And they're in Jerusalem, so they're meeting in the temple courts, and then they're meeting in each other's houses. And at the end of Luke 2 and the end of Luke 4, he gives us what I would call a snapshot of the early church. They're meeting daily, worshiping together, praying together, listening to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread. But one of the things that Luke, who writes Acts, tells us over and over is that they shared They gave to anybody who had need so that nobody was in need. And then we're told that people from time to time would just sell their property and come and bring it to the apostles and lay it at their feet to distribute to those in need. Generosity was a major characteristic of the early church. When people are baptized into Christ and form a church, form a community, generosity just happens naturally as the Spirit of Christ flows through you. There's a man named Mark Weaver who was on The Price is Right. Anybody watch The Price is Right? 
Right? Is that, I don't even know if that show's still on, but a young Christian man one day, was his name's Mark Weaver, and he was picked out of the audience to be a participant in this game show. And to make a long story short, he won, and he won big. He won $58,000 worth of prizes. He won two cars, a trip to France, and all this other stuff. It's funny, if you get on YouTube, you can watch it. He's, he's so excited, and he's jumping around, and then the show ends. This young guy, $58,000. A Christian magazine followed up with him a few months later, and in an interview, they asked him, what'd you do with all the prize money? And he wasn't trying to brag. He was just answering the question. But he said, you know, the temptation is to just spoil myself. Come across a lot of money, never going to see something like that again, so I could enjoy the cars, I could go on the trip and have a great time. But the joy of that, the excitement of that, will eventually dwindle away. He said, but I realized I wanted to do something with the money that would bring me joy many years from now. So they said, well, what'd you do with it? He said, I sold the cars, I got the money back for the trip, and I gave it away. And they said, you gave away $58,000. And he said, yeah. I knew that if I kept it, the temptation would be to be selfish with it, so I just gave it all away. When I heard that story, I thought about Acts 2 and Acts 4 in this early church and the generosity that they had. They gave to people in need. They gave to the apostles who kind of served as the elders of that early church. They gave because they were passionate about giving. Not because they had to, but because they wanted to. They wanted the work to continue on. They wanted to help people who were in need. They gave out of joy and out of passion. Later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, when the Apostle Paul is preaching, he quotes Jesus, and you see this quote in red at the bottom of this paragraph, and he says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Something that Jesus never actually says in the Gospels. He says a lot of things very similar to it, but Paul is quoting something from Jesus that we don't even read about in the Gospels, but it sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? It's a direct quote from Jesus. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And I think the church that we see modeled for us in Acts, they picked up on that. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And then you read throughout the New Testament, and you see in Paul's letters, he's challenging the church to give. In 1 Corinthians, he challenges them to set aside money on a weekly basis. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he commends them for their generosity, and he challenges them to excel in the grace of giving. So giving, generosity, was a foundational characteristic of the early church. And then one of those biblical summaries that I told you about is we give because it belongs to God anyways. There's this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that I want to read to you. In Deuteronomy 8, you know, God is, he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery into the wilderness, and he's getting ready to bring them into the promised land, and he's challenging them to remember what God has done for them. And there's these two verses in Deuteronomy 8, verse 17 and 18. It says, Do not say to yourself, My power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, so that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your ancestors as he is doing today. God reminds the Israelites, he challenges them. 
The temptation will be to say, look at what my hard work has earned. Or maybe today to say, look how strategic I was. Look how smart I am to make this much money. Look how hard I've worked. This is my money. I've earned it. But God says, no, don't look at it from that perspective. Instead, look at it from the perspective of it's God who gives you the ability to even make a living in the first place. So the perspective shifts from this is mine, which is something we pick up on from the time we're little kids, to this is God's. And we're just stewards of what God has given us on the short time we have on this earth. I heard a preacher one time do, do a lesson on, uh, on stealing. And the most obvious definition of stealing, he said, is wrongful taking. When you take something that doesn't belong to you, that's called stealing. But he said there's another form of stealing, and he called it wrongful keeping. And that's when God has blessed you, whether it's with wealth, resources, talents, gifts, abilities, and you just keep it to yourself. And I never thought about stealing from that perspective. But he said stealing can also be wrongful keeping. So we practice generosity. We give, right, because it belongs to God anyways. We give because God is a giver. We see this is how God continues his work, that Jesus challenged us to do it, the church modeled it for us, and we do it because God has entrusted us with it. Now this morning, I'm challenging you with that. This is, we're not going to pass the collection plate around again and take up an offering and see how well this lesson did. We're just challenging you to go home, talk with your spouse, pray about it, and reconsider and maybe even reprioritize. And there's always a part of me or of a preacher and when you have a conversation like this, you're probably anticipating that some people are thinking, whoa, you're getting in my business a little too much there. But every time I read through the life and teachings of Jesus, I see that he is constantly calling me and calling us to reprioritize our lives. To follow Jesus means to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. So that's your challenge this morning. We're going to offer a chance for you to respond here in just a moment. We have elders who will be standing in the back, and I'll be up front. Somebody else will be up here with me. If you need prayers this morning, if you need to respond while we sing a few more songs, we just want you to know that you are welcome to respond. We will receive you. You will not be judged in this church. But we want to encourage you to take this time if you need to. Let's stand up. Let's continue our worship.